Hello, and welcome to another episode of Talking Tropes. I'm Hannah. I'm David, um, and we're coming back from hiatus with just a, a simple little trope analysis uh, on the various hair color tropes in, uh, in media, uh, focusing yeah. on a lot of television and film uh and mostly things of the last you know 60 to 70 years i guess mm-hmm. um because that was yeah. when our modern uh relationship with blondness sort of began to evolve uh in the wake of the invention of hair dye uh and marketing surrounding <laughs> blondness and blondes as <laughs> commodities <laughs> yeah um i mean i think you know this is a, like a fun one and it's almost surprising that we haven't already done it you know we've been doing this for a while now um and this this is like one of the most common like tropes stereotypes that pops up again in in art and media everywhere um and I think especially in film. Um, and yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to just holistically take a peek at how we stereotypically view different hair colors. We've got blondes, brunettes, redheads, uh, gray hair, white hair. We'll briefly touch on the craziness that is anime hair coloring, you know. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot out there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do want to take a step back briefly and just go meta and say, are we yeah. sure 100% that these are real tropes? Is it possible okay. that like, that as we go through these tropes, we'll find things that are opposites or subversions that basically imply that given a certain amount of films and TV shows that feature blonde actresses, eventually you will have them encompass every single personality trait. Oh, of course. I mean, I mean that's true. Ones that conform of... to blonde stereotypes and ones that directly contradict them and subvert them to the point where it almost ceases to be a trope and is just grouping categories of blondness. But to me, I think the reason that that it has value as a trope or, you know, at least to talk about these things in a grouping is because I think there's still very much a cultural idea of the blonde, mm-hmm. you know? Like, we bring... It's it's this feedback loop that we talk about a lot between reality and media where, you know, someone brings a an individualized assumption about a group of people... And makes that kind of the the base, you know, the basis. Basis is blondes are dumb. And then everything off of that is is considered a subversion or an inversion or a twist, um, in, in a sense. Right. You know? Although, I mean, as far as, like, stereotypes go, it's not just that blondes are dumb, but that... Blondes tend to be associated with, like, the idea of innocence, which often goes along with dumb portrayals, or right, often the idea of the... frivolosity. Right. Or sometimes the idea of, like, a comic pairing of a blonde and a brunette would be one is, you know, simple and the other is straight, you know. The, the contrast of the goofy one and the the straight-laced one is going to come mm. up a lot because blondes and brunettes tend to have tropes associated with contrast rather than tropes right. that are just embodied in themselves. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, even though we are going to see a lot of subversions or attempts at subversion in this list, um, the the insidiousness of stereotype is not that it tells you that all blondes are a certain way, but that all of their character traits are going to be filtered through the lens of blonde. That right. if they're a smart blonde, they're subverting that trope. If they're a dumb blonde, they're affirming the trope. It's always within this lens of, like, 
it's a, if, if if it's a surprise, then what is it a surprise for? You know, it's it becomes like a lowered expectation of the character before you even really get to know them. Yeah, I I mean absolutely that I I agree with that a hundred percent. And you know, I think that's why there's still value in talking about it as this trope because it is still a thing that exists. It'd be nice if we didn't have these stereotypes, but we do. Um, so now we're gonna talk about him, suckers. Suckers, we gotcha. Uh, so we, you know, we already started talking about the blondes. I guess we should start there. Sure. There's a lot of, a lot of blonde tropes. <laughs> so what are, what are some stereotypes, uh, about blondes that we typically see? What are some, some tropes? Well, already talked about uh, the dumb blondes, okay. you know, um, and blondes have more fun. And, you know, most people, as you said, sort of track this uh, understanding of blondness back to the invention of hair dye and, um, you know, the rise of the film star in like the 40s, 50s. Sure. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. You know, when, when you think of blonde 50s Hollywood, you think immediately of Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. Monroe. Yeah. Yeah. We said it at the same time, even. Jinx. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, for, you know, in preparation for this, we both watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, uh, mm-hmm. which is a very silly movie, um, very where silly. the premise was just, let's take the two most attractive women in Hollywood and have them be on a cruise. <laughs> And be different from each other. Right. And have contrast. So uh, Monroe's character, Lorelai, um, is portrayed as ditzy, airheaded, um, and, you know, obsessed with a particular superficial kind of romance. That's, Mm -hmm. she likes money and diamonds. You know, Mm -hmm. the famous song, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, comes from this film. And what we see in Lorelei is sort of sets the standard for the next, you know, 50 to 80 years. But it's drawing on a long history of femme fatale sort of money-seeking, you know, gold diggers. That's all that Mm -hmm. she is, basically, is a gold digger (laughs) or a diamond digger, if that were such a thing. Right. And and throughout the film, her character... um, you know, tends to act frivolously. You know, I think this is where we we sort of start to get... Childishly, um, even. Right. She's a little bit childish. She's a little bit um, frivolous. She... You know, I think you were also talking about how blondes um, can be perceived as, like, innocent or naive. Right. Um, and I think, you know, it's the viewing of of um being being that way makes you dumb you know it's not that you just have not experienced things it's oh you're dumb you don't know better about the world right yeah it's a it's a it's an innocence meets an ignorance and so when she's confronted with questions about things that everyone should know as an adult she'll immediately not know those but i think that where the film tries to subvert her low intelligence they strike on something kind of interesting about the way that stereotypes work because she's not a a stupid person no she lacks knowledge on basic you know basic human knowledge but she like it's just a very sort of privileged ignorance that she has Right, yeah. Uh, but but also, you know, even though she's ignorant, she has an intelligence, a wit, a, a cleverness, because, you know, there's a scene where she confronts a, um, you know, a maitre d' uh, trying to get a wealthy man seated at her table. And she's very aware that a lot of single men have already bribed this maitre d' to place them at her table. Uh-huh. Um, so... She is uh, is sort of subtly uh, letting this major D know that if the person that she wants at the table isn't there, she simply won't have her meals at that table, and then everyone will demand their money back. So 
she's manipulating him into getting what she wants. Uh, the same way that she would manipulate uh, this wealthy diamond uh, magnate um, mm-hmm. into giving her this tiara, uh, this diamond-studded tiara. So her her wit and her cleverness is filtered through her blondness, which means it has to be through the lens of romance, um, portraying herself as innocent, you know, feigning ignorance. And, mm-hmm. you know, playing the part of the desired object in order to mm-hmm. get what she wants. So it's still, like, a passive feminine role for her where she is, you know, subtly taking control by, you know, using her feminine wiles or whatever. <laughs> right. Like, finding power within the structures of the patriarchy, basically. Right, um, but always, you know, I'm just saying it's written by men in right. a very specific exactly. way where her cleverness has to be only because she wants to get something from a man. Right. So Lorelai's companion on this trip, for contrast, is Brunette, and so is portrayed in many ways to be the opposite of Lorelai, whereas Lorelai is only interested in one man, a total monogamous relationship that's almost entirely about material wealth. Uh, mm-hmm. Her counterpart, played by Jane Russell, is Dottie. Dottie is just interested in men for the other thing that men are good for, <laughs> besides money, in the 50s. Um, <laughs> uh, for their bodies. So he, she pursues an entire um, Olympic gymnastic uh, team. And I, yeah. I guess swimmers also. Just all the <laughs> Olympic athletes. Uh, yeah. And she has no need for monogamy at first. But then, you know, by the end, of course, everyone has to have uh, have a wedding gown on. Because it's the 50s <laughs> still. <laughs> yep. The haze code and full effect. Right. I mean, I don't even know if you needed to for something so light and frivolous as this. You know, like based on a broadway show but like really just it's just a farce for farce's sake um with plenty of just comedic scenes of these two bouncing off each other and again like the contrast she's portrayed as more knowledgeable more worldly um more independent uh more i guess feminist in some ways because because she's a brunette Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Lorelai is portrayed as, you know, classically feminine or traditionally feminine mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. I think that's, I think that is like exactly what blondness sort of has become at like almost because of this movie is that, you know, there's a lot of different things, you know, there, there, are, there are many different individual aspects that are sometimes contradictory that you could group under traditional femininity, you know, mm-hmm. or traditional blondness. Um, and I think that's that's where the blonde tends to go. And right. then I think um, subversive characters or somewhat non-traditional, you know, it's the... Right. All, yeah, all you girls could even, and then other girls. You could even, rather yeah. than categorizing it as traditional or non-traditional, categorize it as, like, regressive or progressive femininity. Like, a sort of an oppositional, contradictory femininity or a, 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 a you know, an allegiance to... An accommodating. An accommodating of uh, a kind of regressive femininity that, you know, mm-hmm. has, you know, conservative political implications... Uh, yeah, you know it's it's something to consider that like men, if 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 we're filtering like if men are more attracted to blondes in the fifties, which right. I'm not saying necessarily they were, but that was the general <laughs> sense at the time. Then mm-hmm. somebody who would dye their hair blonde could be perceived stereotypically as somebody seeking out men's affections, right? Without you know asserting their own individuality i mean yes (laughs) i i think it just goes to you know it's the superficiality of you know it's it's considered like oh most people have brown hair so if you're dyeing your hair blonde 
ooh, you must be, like, looking for male attention. You know, you're right. asking for Whereas, it Whereas, on the other hand, if you're a natural blonde, maybe you're mm-hmm. embodying a sort of Aryan... Um, an Aryan uh, ideal... Greatness. Uh, yeah. Of, of what white American girls should be. Hometown, mm-hmm. homegrown, non-urban... You know, I think there is a political uh, aspect to all of these stereotypes beyond just the naturally political aspect of we're grouping all women into two (laughs) categories. (laughs) Right, right. You know, or possibly three if if the story (laughs) will accommodate it. Right. And again, it it only tends to apply to young women, too. Hmm. Um you know, because as women get older, hair grays. So, you know, once you have gray hair, then you're considered, you know, entirely sexually done for. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you have no desire to anyone anymore. You you go on the shelf and you're already a mother or a grandmother. And, like, you know, that's kind of where you belong. Um, but then, you know, in the context of young women... It's, oh, what flavor of white lady do I want? You know? (laughs) But I don't know. I I wouldn't necessarily agree with you there because, and I'm not an expert in this show by any means, but Golden Girls, right? Yes. I mean, Blanche is the redhead, right? Yes. And she's the fiery, sexual, out there one. And Betty Mm -hmm. White, blonde, is the ditzy not uh, not all the way there one correct mm-hmm. do you watch golden girls right i know i know golden girls <laughs> i don't so I mean, i'm i'm pulling this sort of out of thin air but i mean yes like the I mean, um you could, the oldest one like, whose name i'm forgetting is seen as just like old and non-sexual and non-feminine but or she is she's kind of the least feminine right but the b arthur um, character whose name i'm is escaping me. Her hair is yeah. closer to brunette, I guess, than anyone else in the group. It's, it's she great. was clearly a brunette, but she's gray now. Right. But I mean, I think Golden Girls is an outlier because there's not generally a lot of TV shows about older women. Right, but I think that's the point, things. right? So it's not that right. older women escape blondness and brunetteness or redheadedness. Right. It's just that they are often taken out of the equation altogether, story wise. Right. And, and you know, in a lot of media and TV and movies, older women often dye their hair, you know, like people in my family, um, you know, like my mom dyed her hair like for years. And it wasn't until recently that, you know, she has after COVID basically, you know, has let it grow out gray. Um, right. Like, like people keep up. Whereas you know, these appearances. for contrast, yeah. men. Uh, will sometimes put, you know, a touch of gray in to add an air of sophistication. The silver fox right. is a trope mm-hmm. that has made George Clooney a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen an advertisement for touch of gray just for beards and mustaches. Oh, I don't know. Just I don't know why it, they would be different in terms of their reaction to the chemical that bleaches well, them. Well, it's a different. It's a different kind of hair. Yeah, but, I mean, it's the same type of pigmentation, you know? Right, but, like, the hair... It, it, I'll, I'll tell you, it's different. <laughs> you're, you're woman-splaining <laughs> beards to me. I'm not woman-splaining beard. I mean, I'll call it what they are. It's your pubic hair, David. It's a different <laughs> kind of hair follicle. It needs different shit than your, your no, head hair. No, I, I know, but it's just funny to me to... <laughs> To, to get a touch of gray just in your beard. Anyway. But, but you know, it's, it's a classic idea that being older for women lessens your social relevance and social power in certain ways. Because you're no longer seen as sexy or desirable. Whereas for men, it, it lends a sense of authority and... Um, knowledgeability i guess to to your persona that is sort of our stereotype for touch of grace you know um right yeah silver fox 
definitely a, a gray-haired trope. Um, yeah, I'd say going back to the sort of blonde-brunette contrast dynamic that we see yes. beginning in um, in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, uh, we really see that take on like the embodiment of a culture of a particular era with Three's Company, which was you know one of the most popular television shows of the late seventies, um, and made you know Suzanne Somers one of the biggest stars of television at the time for playing a really stereotypical ditzy blonde character uh, opposite right. Joyce DeWitt, who plays you know a more straight-laced, brown-haired character. And it was mm-hmm. so stereotypical that by the end of the series, we start to see how the culture is changing um, because they they replace Suzanne Somers with another actress, but after they replace that one, they replace it with a third actress, um, Priscilla Barnes, who plays Terry Alden, who was a nurse and was a... I, I believe she was a nurse. And she was portrayed as like a brainy blonde. So mm. it was in response to criticism from, you know, feminists of the late 70s, early 80s, saying, let's let's deconstruct. Why do we need this woman to be such a ditz? You know? Why can't mm. she be empowered and, you know, have her own identity? So, you know, we've talked a lot about dumb blonde, but there are a few other tropes that have to do with blonde-haired people. Um, you know, we sort of touched on hair of gold, heart of gold. Sure. Uh, which, it's the sort of girl-next-door archetype. Um, yeah. Which I think also goes which, back to a, a sort of Aryan-ness, a sort of homegrown country flavor that we associate with blondness, where it's extremely Caucasian it's but it's not you know weird Caucasian like Irish or you know Scottish or something you know or like boring hair. Caucasian like the brown right. hair well you know to of. speak in the parlance of the 50s um, Asians have you know b- black hair and brown hair so you know who cares it's like you know, an association of dark hair with dark skin, so an association of light hair with light skin. And mm. so, yeah, the the innocence, it, it definitely has a political dimension and almost fascist sort of dimension to it. But we can look at tons of, you know, homegrown, blonde-haired country stars, I guess, as an example mm-hmm. of this. Um, mm-hmm. Or blonde-haired Disney stars, you know, mm-hmm. Britney Spears or whatever, who, you know, they start out very innocent and then you have to see them... And then they're not that ...cross innocent. a threshold where they're not that <laughs> innocent. Um, but, uh, you know, I think a great example is um, Betty from the Archie comics and more recently Riverdale, where yeah. she's seen as the safe, likable nice girl choice um mm-hmm. that for Archie to to go for um mm-hmm. versus Veronica who is uh a stereotypical snobby rich bitch um yeah and she also sort of has this kind of like urban like outsider aesthetic where she's not really from Riverdale or not really mm-hmm. part of the group um because of her Wealth and also because of her brunetteness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's interesting because you know they they definitely don't fall into like the dumb blonde sort of stereotype. No. Um, like that that element of it has sort of been reversed, where you know Veronica tends to be the one that's viewed as more frivolous and less into studying. Um, right. And it's just kind of there for a good time. Whereas Betty is a little bit more studious, a little bit more diligent, you know. She's good. Like, she, in all, she's good. In all things. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I was really interested looking at, like, the, the Riverdale season one. Like, how are they introducing these characters? And are they, like, messing with the dynamic? And the answer is, like, mm-hmm. mostly no. Mostly they're maintaining it exactly <laughs> as it was. And, of course, you know, uh, with 
uh, Jughead, he's like the narrator in that first season. Um, you know, giving everyone weird one-liners. Um, so wow. I, I just thought it was interesting. Like in episode three, he's he's talking about Betty and Veronica, and he goes, "Good and evil, light and dark, Betty and Veronica." two sides of the same Janus coin. You know, like, just really, like, laying into the idea that the writers think they're so clever for noticing that these two characters are meant to contrast one another. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, but so, yeah, to simplify, in a real oversimplification, Betty good, Veronica bad. (laughs) Right. Which is not me shipping. Uh, to be clear, I have no investment in Riverdale shipping. Yeah, um, let's let's not get involved in Riverdale shipping, please. Would love that. Tweet at us at Talking um, Tropes to let us know who you think best girl is in Riverdale. No, don't do it. I mean, the only opinion I want to hear is Betty x Veronica. Um, everything else, don't give a shit about. Yeah, well, they did it in a um, what if comic, but it's not canon. <laughs> They did in a what if comment, and then there was the queer baby gay kiss in season one. But, but that's it. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, Betty Veronica, very classic examples when we've got the two hair colors sort of contrasting against each other. Right. And I think but- part, of, part of the reason that this um, dynamic has continued throughout, like, film and television is because it's a visual medium... And it's really quick visual coding for people to be like, right. here's one character. They're like this. Here's another character. They're like that. Right. You can tell because of their hair. Right. Well, in, <laughs> you know? in comics and cartoons, there was, you know, you need contrast because if you're printing in black and white and you draw in a particular style, I mean, Betty and Veronica are basically indistinguishable other than their hair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's, there's no way to tell them apart. And then, you know, for um, television, same sort of thing. It's in black and white at the start, and it's uh, it's difficult to see. It's very blurry. So it's mm-hmm. it makes sense to, to differentiate your characters that way. Now, mm-hmm. they didn't really think to do it with people of different races, which are also pretty easy to visually distinguish. Oh, I mean, they did it. They just did it in the most racist way possible right but i mean (laughs) in early tv it was just it was a whole lot of just like well there's black shows which have black people in them and then there's white shows um and i think you know the betty and veronica are most similar and archie is really who i'm talking about is most similar to the many loves of dobie gillis um which was an early television show where yeah he has a brunette who's pining after him who's like a brainy nerd and uh, and and kind of a, a a homebody, and then he's always going after the popular blonde or or otherwise, you know, beautiful looking uh, classmates. So the idea of like the overlooked brunette is a big thing, but also that's yes, you know, it can be subverted where there's an overlooked blonde character who you know the main mm-hmm. character is always going after the brunettes or something. Um, right, it's it's if they're playing the blonde as I think the blonde falls really nicely into the Madonna horror complex where mm-hmm. you know you're either the naive girl next door blonde or you're the slutty, sexy, like bombshell, frivolous blonde that everyone lusts after, you know. I mean, I think there are characters that are definitely, like, in the middle of those. Uh, but, like, I mean, the yes, thing is, yes, I think just saying... that we always read the, the... We read who they are through their hair, like, as one of the first things that we think about for them. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think about, you know, for contrast, maybe, like, a show like Community uh, on NBC, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a well that I go to a lot, where two of the main characters, Britta and... Um, and Annie. Annie. They aren't exactly stereotypical blonde and brunette in the first season. Um, yes, Annie is portrayed as the more innocent one. She's not as worldly, and she's br- uh, brunette. She's stu- she's studious and you know very responsible and 
empowered in herself, I guess. Mm -hmm. But she's also pining after a guy. It's like a very hometown romance sort of thing. And Britta is more worldly. She's an activist. She's more feminist. uh, Mm -hmm. And she's portrayed as, you know, not necessarily smarter, but more... um, Engaged. engaged. She's street savvy. Right. And she's promiscuous in a way that Annie's portrayed not to be as well. Mm-hmm. And 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 a sexually available character. She's being pursued by the main character, Jeff, in that first season. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we also have the black woman, Shirley, who, you know, is completely sidelined right. by you know, like isn't even a part of this common conversation, right. you know. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, identifiable things about Shirley that you know make her not traditional for network TV romance. But right. you know, she has a a romance, but it's, it's just sort of to use a loaded term, segregated. <laughs> yes. Um, um. But. I was going to follow up just the Britta thing real quick, which is Mm -hmm. she, over time, becomes a ditz in the series Mm -hmm. and sort of maybe starts to conform more to her blondness, or maybe Mm. we just read it that way. Because she's becoming more, in Dan Harmon's words, Charlie Brownish, in that she's Mm. a lovable loser who never does anything right. She can't kick that football. She can't kick the football. (laughs) <laughs> you know, she will attempt things that don't go the way that she plans. But that's not necessarily blonde, but it's it's easy to fall into the trap of accidentally writing a blonde character who continuously demonstrates that she's not very worldly at all, that she actually doesn't know anything about how the world works. Right. Uh, yeah. I think we've neglected redheads for far too long now, David, and I would really love to get to some redhead rep on <laughs> okay. this pod. So, I, yeah, I think redheads, uh, you know, they're an even more specific sort of ethnic enclave of, of media. Um, they're so heavily associated with Irish characters in America, at least, mm-hmm. uh, you know, probably due to a lot of Irish stereotyping and Irish, uh, you know, prejudice in America that doesn't necessarily exist yeah. in all parts of the world, um, but also exists I mean, in the UK. I mean, it certainly <laughs> exists in the UK. Yeah. Right. But not necessarily <laughs> in, like, I don't know, France, <laughs> where a lot of I other mean, media I don't might know. come from. Uh, for example, <laughs> I, don't... I believe that, or, or, you know, maybe not in Canada either. I don't, I don't know. Because Canada has more of an Irish sort of lineage. I don't know. But it also has, you know, it was part of the UK. Right. I don't know. I'm just just thinking about, you know, the differences that are specific to America that that might that might blur what people perceive redheads to be. Um, (laughs) So you know, I mean, like, there's redheadedness. You know, just literally genetically is a rarer trait uh-huh. in human populations. I think globally it's only like 2 to 3% of the world population has red hair. I think in America it's something like 2 to 6% of the population. Um, so you know, if we're if we're saying 6% of the population is redheads, then, you know, that's still pretty rare. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think these stereotypes often develop in the same way that stereotypes um, can can develop when something isn't a common, you know. Uh, okay, like so they're just you're just saying they're othered, they're distinguished, yeah. they're prominent, right. and so they make for striking visually, visual television or or, or film exactly. or comics or animation. Um, um, right. I, I mean, fair. like, there's historical historical prejudice against redheads, yes, with um, the Irish, though redheadedness is, I looked this up, it's actually more common in the Scottish population than the Irish population. Sure. Um, but we so associate who, it with both because we're racist. Um. Yeah. Um, but, but, like, in the, the Middle Ages, um, redheaded 
women were sometimes persecuted as witches right. literally because they had red as hair, were you know, anybody honestly. who looked any different in any way if you had exactly if you had alopecia if you had albinism if you had any oh, kind no. of disability or you know difference in your appearance mm-hmm. uh yeah you were probably labeled as either a witch monster or simpleton or you know something heretic uh yeah or or bastard yeah often um right right so so you know we get the red-headed stepchild is uh you know it's just code for bastard basically (laughs) um that's the the association that they're trying to get across when they say beat him like a red-headed stepchild like you would beat your that's the expression that's the full version of the expression I don't know if I've ever heard that. Yeah, you say like, oh, he, you, you, you beat him like a redheaded stepchild of, you know, you know, whatever. Um, wow. Because because it's someone who you would abuse, and be justified right. in doing so, according to a, an outdated form of morality. Okay, so we just had a little technical difficulty let's call it a glitch um and then in the interim i just had this sort of realization of like the way that we're doing this like historicizing it's almost like we're justifying the existence of stereotypes or or you know trying to it's 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 a common trap that you know media historians (laughs) fall into all the time which you just end up reifying like that blondes and brunettes have this natural uh, dynamic that would inevitably make its way into media because of our need for visual difference or something. And it's mm-hmm. like striking me that the reason that I couldn't find any liter- literature doing what I'm doing now is because no one believes that that's where blondes and brunettes come from. It's just <laughs> like any stereotype, you know? It's like, you know, to use myself as an example, like Jews being greedy or whatever it comes from a long history that isn't based on a real thing that happened and trying to historicize it by saying well jews were money lenders is not uh it doesn't justify the stereotype the stereotype exists outside right. of that and then with blondes and brunettes those stereotypes they work their way into our media and then become a part of people's sexual desires and then they stick and there's there's no real point in over-historicizing. I think, you know, I'm not saying everything we said was invalid, but I don't know. I'm just... Be wary of people like us who think that we can tell you exactly where a trope comes from. When it's, it's just yeah. sometimes people's biases and the mm-hmm. biases of the people who write the media that creates our society. Right. And, you know, like we... We were going to talk about redheads, uh, but, you know, as you were saying and during our our quick discussion, um, you know, what are we going to say? They're fiery or unloved, and that's about it? (laughs) Right. It's, you know, know, I'm sure that you guys who have been listening this far have been interested in us looking at the specific examples and, and how they might play out differently or similarly to, you know, to others, but... Ultimately, you guys all know what the stereotypes of these different hairstyles are. You don't need us to point out examples of them. You just intuitively know that, you mm-hmm. know, blondes are innocent, brunettes are not, redheads are fiery. And that it, mm-hmm. it only holds up for Caucasian women and yeah. only in certain film contexts like 1950s America. Um, and that it doesn't hold up anywhere outside of that because it's not a human essential trait that blondes are a certain way and brunettes are not. Um, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, so we were going to shift into, you know, maybe the more problematic aspects of, um, how one man's obsession with a particular hair color can create an incredibly abusive environment and then create an abusive critical environment following it where if that person is heralded as a genius filmmaker unparalleled in his time they might overlook the damage that he does um so trigger warning for 
sexual abuse and um, and for rape, but we're going to go into uh, the Hitchcock Blonde briefly. Um, so, for those of you who don't know, uh, Hannah, can you explain what is meant by the term Hitchcock Blonde? Um. <laughs> so, Alfred Hitchcock preferred to cast uh, blondes and blondes women, um, but they were also, you know, often the ones to get murdered. <laughs> right. Well, they they were. There's a there's a complex sort of thing with that, but he mostly cast them like after the the 1950s hit. So some people will claim, oh, he was just sort of catering to general Hollywood tastes. But in reality, it's more like he was catering to his own very specific fetishy tastes. Um, and he also saw blonde, uh, blonde women as innocent or as seeming innocent. And what he liked to do was portray them as these femme fatale characters who would go out and commit crimes or seduce men, and you wouldn't expect it because you wouldn't expect a blonde girl to do something bad. And right. he said that, but you know that's just him saying that. And in reality, he was you know sexually interested in all these women that he cast in these roles, and you know he would emotionally abuse them sometimes out of his own obsession with them. Um, so, I mean, the, the main example that people use because she was one of the first to come forward was, uh, Tippi Hedren, who he cast in, you know, multiple films. Um, I first saw her in Marnie, which is a story about rape and sexual coercion. Uh, in that story, Marnie, uh, compulsively steals money and has a repressed trauma from her mother being a prostitute that means that she can never be with men and so sean connery uh seduces her and then blackmails her into marrying her and then on their honeymoon cruise rapes her and ultimately sort of like does the whole like shake her until she stops being crazy thing and goes through this mystery to find out where her trauma with men came from and why she can never truly be with a man. Uh, but ultimately it's, it's almost portrayed as like a service that he does for her. Uh, even though after he rapes her, Hitchcock does portray her attempting suicide in the next scene. So it's, you know, Marnie is in some ways a typical, uh, Hitchcock blonde because she's, you know, empowered question mark in her you know taking control over her own life stealing money seducing men whatever and visually empowered through this metaphor of her riding this horse which is the one thing that she ever loved which connotes almost like a, a queer uh anti-men you know hate like that her hatred of men is almost like lesbian or queer in that she loves riding horses um, but horses are also <laughs> this like signifier of masculinity. So it's, it's like a complicated thing, but basically yeah. the story of Marnie is the story of Alfred Hitchcock abusing Tippi Hedren emotionally in like every scene and also offset and like mailing her daughter, a doll of her in a coffin, um, just weird shit like that. And, uh, and, you know, that gets baked into the critical consensus around Alfred Hitchcock about whether he is, you know, brilliantly portraying the psychosexual uh, feelings of his audience or whether he's mm -hmm. just indulgently showing his own fetishes on screen. Yeah, um, which is often the case for another show called Totally Spies. <laughs> Tell me about Totally Spies, Hannah. Um, basically, every episode is just a different writer's fetish. Uh, oh. You know, like, the, it's it's the classic thing. You have every flavor of white or not black girl. Um, you know, you got a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead. Uh, and this one, 
this one sort of plays with the tropes a little, you know, the, mm-hmm. the redhead is like the, the smart leader, though you kind of get that with the Powerpuff Girls, too. That's true. You know? Yeah. Like, there's very much the Powerpuff Girls kind of uh, vibe to the Although, totally Spies Although, uh, in this, uh, I think Alex is, um, uh, she's the sporty one, but she's also kind of um, dumb as well, or innocent. Yeah, I mean, she's just not as smart as, um, Sam. as Sam. Is Sam? Yeah. yeah, Sam's the redhead. Um, but then, you know, we get dumb blonde Clover, uh, which right. matches Well, she's fashion obsessed. She's, she's a Beverly Hills. She's a valley girl. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The valley girl stereotype being associated with blondness or bleach blondness is, you yeah. know, that also has its, its long roots. I mean, we can see that in Legally Blonde as well Mm -hmm. which i think was the most recent attempt to kind of subvert the trope by buying into it 100 percent, you know in the way that a lot of people did these this with a lot of things in the early 2000s where it was you know you embrace the stereotype in order to critique it um and so it's like even if you were to see the most valley girl valley girl la Stuck up, rich, privileged, you know, new, you know, nouveau rich, rich you know, dumb blonde right. character. She could still be a great lawyer and graduate from Harvard first in her class, and you know, right. be brilliant. And I think that's why a lot of people, you know, still today see Elle Woods as like the feminist icon because she embraces yeah. like a form of femininity that is so easy to look down on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a great video about Legally Blonde, um, in that, that talks about, um, how we, we end up rooting for Elle because it's like a, an, a weird class issue and her blondness ends up being part of that, the way we perceive Elle's class. Right. It's class um, outside yeah. of just w- how much money she has. Cause she's rich. She's richer right. than most right. of her classmates. But mm-hmm. she's not old money, you know, mm-hmm. and so she's not seen as class E. Um, right, exactly. Her outfits are garish on the East Coast, and I mean, I don't like. I don't know anything about like if that still exists as a perception, the East Coast versus West Coast thing. I think it is. I think it totally does. I mean, you know, I lived in L.A. for a little bit, and I didn't notice a particular difference in people's dress, but you know. I mean, besides it being warmer physically there <laughs> than on the East Coast. Uh, but I didn't notice, like, a a superficiality to, you know, that doesn't exist in Brooklyn, for example. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting that they're, like, relying on those stereotypes to build the story around. That they're subverting it in that instead of a... Um, a sort of a mousy brown-haired girl being overlooked for a party girl who doesn't really love the guy. It's instead sort of the other way around, where the blonde sorority girl is being overlooked for someone considered more serious. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how, that's how it starts, is that she's looking for marriage, but she's seen as not serious enough, and that she sees the only way to become serious is to become a Harvard lawyer. <laughs> right. Um, um, but I, you know, and part of it is that she learns that she can become a Harvard lawyer while also wearing pink, man. <laughs> right. And like the way that she breaks stereotype is that she is good on paper. You know, she can mm-hmm. ace tests. She can memorize facts and laws and things mm-hmm. like that, that some of her classmates can't even do. Um, right. But she adheres to stereotype in that she, you know, has, like, sorority... Things just keep coming up about her being a sorority girl, where, you know, sorority girls keep secrets for one another, and sorority girls, you know, don't don't snitch, I guess. (laughs) It's just sort of a means of keeping her on the outside of this law click that has been asked Mm -hmm. by victor garber to help adjudicate a a case right um yeah but in the end you know she ends up doing the case on her own 
with a little help from them, you know, kicking Victor Garber off the case for sexually harassing her. So, uh, you know, I guess it all works out. But in the end, like, aren't we still just reinforcing, like, an extremely stereotypical view of blondness in order to subvert the idea that blondes are dumb? I mean, like, we all know that blondes aren't really dumb in real life, and (laughs) there are plenty of blonde characters who aren't dumb and who aren't stereotypical, so... Why do we need a stereotypically blonde character to then surprise us by being good at, you know, law? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the same trap that we were falling into at this very episode, you know, where it seems it, it's so in the cultural milieu that sometimes we feel like we need to address it like ex- address it you know and so, and i think are we there's... not addressing blonde bias i mean this is another thing right like white yeah. women have a uh, certain kinds of privileges would you not agree with that that absolutely at least are not 100%. available to you know women of color and you know that we associate blonde girls with pretty girls <laughs> That's another level of privilege as well. And then it seems like when we talk about blonde bias, we we rarely address the actual sexism that is universal, which I think right. is the only thing of blonde bias that is consistent. Because obviously the point in Legally Blonde is that, yeah, she's not being biased against for being stupid. She's being biased against for being a woman. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. that's what's really happening here. And that's what we realize yeah. by the end. But, like, mm-hmm. I think it's, like, a common claim on, of blonde women. Like, you know, so they'll say, like, blonde women are the only people who it's acceptable to, you know, be stereotypical, you know, to be prejudiced against. Um, right. Which is just obviously you know, not we, the case. It, like, in our society, it's surprisingly acceptable to be a bigot. Um, you can achieve a lot of power while still being a bigot. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, it's, it feels stupid to maybe use this, the word intersectional when it comes to, like, hair color. Right. (laughs) Especially when we're talking about, like, the treatment of white women. Exactly. Um, I mean, I just don't see like, a body of lit- literature it's... about it at all. Like, I don't see when people talk about intersectionality talking about blonde privilege or brunette privilege. Well, so, so I mean, in doing a little bit of research, it, it didn't relate specifically to media, so I didn't um, necessarily bring it to you. But there's a lot of studies about um, hair color privileges when promoting CEOs. Mm. Um, and that for men, they tend to prefer brunettes, and for women, they tend to prefer blondes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is the way when, you know, in corporate settings, when you're looking at specifically the CEO level. Um, but I think the, the authors suggest that it's possible at all levels of hiring and promotion as well, that, you know, we have these biases towards brunette men and blonde women and right. white people in general. And I think I think that's definitely something that it's important for anyone in a position of power to be cognizant of, to be aware, mm-hmm. and to to fight it when it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mostly from you know from other women who you know in terms of solidarity, because you know if a man if a man is just saying, well, I can I can't be biased in favor of blondes, then I'll just pick a brunette like. That doesn't really right. solve the issue. The problem. The point is the no. man shouldn't be in charge of deciding that in the first place. Uh, whether a blonde or a blonde <laughs> should be in power based on their visual uh, attraction. Right. Um, and, and you know, I, I think it goes also to internalized misogyny. Mm. You know, when you see a lot of those, um, you know, trad wife stuff, she's usually blonde. When you see... Mm. Um, stuff where I'm not like other girls and like the sexist side of that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, 
I won't get into that. No, it's a, um, it's an important yes. point. I, th- I I'm glad that you bring it up because yes, well, it is. Like it all becomes internalized is... as well. It's yes. not just yeah. So male gaziness one directionally. It's it's internalized and the, the and brunette being overlooked for the blonde women. is a trope in media that then becomes part of these memes that get posted on Facebook as part of real girls' real identities, that they're not like other girls. Right. Because other girls are blonde is essentially the implication. Right. Or, you know, blondes like these things. And these are who the hot, pretty, popular, desirable girls are, and it's represented by blondes. Because in media they are. Um, In media they are displayed as more desirable in in a lot of cases. Yes. Unless you're doing um, the subversion where it's the hometown girl next door blonde being overlooked for the rich, snobby, out of town sexy, brunette. Sexy. Yeah. Worldly. Right. <laughs> the evil <laughs> brunette. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think there there are real consequences to these things. It's just not the same as racism or sexism, no. you know. No. And I mean, it does intersect in the fact that most blonde people are Caucasian. They're white. Right. And, and most, most blonde bias not blonde is against people. Women. Right. Um, but then also, like, there's, there's, you know, if we're talking about attractiveness bias, which is also a thing in general, you know, sometimes that biases towards blonde women in certain situations, as we saw with the um the study about the ceo promotions you know and but i guess the question with that is does media have any power whatsoever to affect those kinds of things you know i mean Mm -hmm. obviously we know representation matters when it comes to you know depicting people of a particular race in non-stereotypical ways allowing people to portray themselves but like you said, when it comes to blondes and brunettes, this stuff is highly internalized. Mm-hmm. And because it's wholly centered on white women, one of the, the most commonly portrayed groups of people on in any medium, you know, women and men. Besides white men. Besides white men. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. It's like, you can't fix right. it by just having more white women. It doesn't. <laughs> right. It doesn't solve the problem. It, if anything, it yeah. exacerbates it. So I guess I'm I'm struggling here to find like a silver lining in how do you <laughs> how? use media to combat this? And I think it's like you can't. You just um, have to. David, I think I think anime has the answer, and that everyone <laughs> oh God, should no. just have. Where, where blondness just hair. means you're a gaijin, and you know uh, <laughs> any other hair color just means you're Japanese. <laughs> Including the <laughs> yeah. colors of the rainbow. Oh, God. I mean, I, I do want to just very briefly touch on the very fun Japanese trope uh, with hair colors where blue usually means you're kind of like the demure shy girl. Yeah. Um, and red means you're a German tsundere. <laughs> We're just talking about Evangelion, right? <laughs> I mean, it's Evangelion, but it's in... It's, it's in tons of modern anime. Right. It's in Sailor Moon, you know? Like, like... Who has blue hair in Sailor Moon? Uh, Mercury. Oh, well, she's blue-themed, but it's more, like, dark. But it's blue. It is it's blue. blue. Yeah. Sorry. It's blue. Um, and, and, you know, like, there, there's a lot of... In, in general, it's a it's a trope. Is the demure right? Well, yeah, it's just girl. going off of the general. Um, and like this is where you can almost say because it's so primary color driven and it's so cartoony, you can almost do the simplistic route we were doing earlier and say, yeah, red means hot, blue means cool. That's like a socially well, right. constructed thing, but it is pretty universal to humans. <laughs> Right, it has no basis in reality, um, but it it's it's the red oni blue oni thing of right, right, uh, right. Japanese media, you know, like as two strong contrasting colors right. that you know dynamic contrast, blah blah blah. Um, so I think we should just dye everyone's hair blue, like an absurd shade of red and blue and purple and green, right. and then this problem goes away. Yeah, uh, if you guys <laughs> have a different take or you think our <laughs> you know, radical departure halfway through an episode 
was interesting. Uh, tweeted us and let us know your thoughts on what these stereotypes do, what your personal relationship is to them, and again, who is best girl, Betty or Veronica? Um, uh, yeah. So let us know at Talking Tropes. Uh, you can check out our video podcasts on YouTube or listen to this podcast wherever you're currently listening to it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to cut that because it's totally pointless. I don't know why I said it. Um, <laughs> what do we normally say? Uh, we say tweet at us at Talking Tropes. Next week we're going to talk about... Oh, okay. So we'll just say, all right, well, it's great to be back. And uh, we'll see you guys next week with another uh, Standing Stanley Tucci. Bye-bye.